So Genesis 22 has three specific takeaways in this narrative. Number one, it's going to show us that God has a purpose and a plan, primarily for the testing of Abraham. Second, it's a book of firsts. It's going to explain some of the what we call the law of first mention. And I want to show you guys what that means. Whenever the scripture shows us the first appearance of a particular word or a, a doctrinal point, every subsequent passage in scripture needs to be filtered through that because this is going to lay out the parameters. Does that make sense? So the law first mentioned will, will, will give you kind of a fail-safe and some stops so that when you see other passages pointing back to this, you'll know that there's a way to keep it consistent. The, the term is exegetical consistency for you guys who want to sound smart to your friends. Um, I had to go look all those words up too, so I'm, I'm, I'm tracking. Um, but the other thing is this book is a book of prophecy. The story of this is going to point to Jesus himself. One of the fun things I like to do when I go through scripture, especially as I'm learning the scriptures, is I look for Jesus under every rock, right? Take what you know of Jesus and apply it to the story as a guideline, because the scriptures are always going to point to Jesus, and that'll keep you from drifting into flaky doctrine, right? You get, you get the one-verse Charlies, or you get the people that, like, they'll be like, they'll, they'll add their own meetings, and it's like, no, if you just put Jesus as the center of the narrative, things will start to click. So let's jump in. In Genesis 22, it says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Testing. Who likes being tested? Right? We Remember in school, pop quizzes? And you learn in school just to take tests for test sakes. You don't actually do it to prove your snot. You're proving that you can take a test, right? You know, you look at like SAT and ACT testing. Like, what is it? I mean, anyone prepare for those? I winged all those trying to find the college that, uh, you know, I'm going to drop out of, which I did. I did drop out of college. So, but the idea is, is like a test has a deeper meaning. And, 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 and so God is going to test Abraham. And, and so it says right here, now it came to pass, God tested Abraham. And he said, this is, it's been a long time since God had spoken to Abraham. Remember, last time he spoke was, he says, hey, time to put out, you know, Hagar and Ishmael. So now it's most likely 20 to 30 years later. You know, God doesn't speak all that often to Abraham. Although they're friends, Abraham had to just fall back on what he knew. You know, we, we really have a luxury with our Bibles, don't we? Like, it's really a product of the last 500 years that we've had a... a a book like this given to us in a language we can understand. Most of the Christian world does not have access to a Bible. Most of church history is without a Bible, right? And so you and I, we get this luxury of getting, getting to see what God has to say to us now. You know, Abraham didn't have that. And so God calls on Abraham, and I like his response. Here I am. 
And there's going to be a purpose to this test. You know, a, a test, it's, the definition of a test is to try something or to prove it. A procedure that's intended to establish the quality, performance, and reliability of something before its widespread use. Tests are desired beforehand so we can use something more greater at a later date. Verse 12 gives us the purpose of Abraham's test. Verse 12 tells us, and he says, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So, God was putting his thumb on Abraham and Abraham's fear of God. This is the most important lesson that every one of us needs to learn. Do you know what it means to fear God? It means to be afraid of God. I don't like that. I just, I just want fluffy kittens, warm hugs, and... But there should be a fear of God. I would hate to say that my obedience is provoked from my emotional just adoration of God. Like That's a small portion of it, but I also understand there's a portion of my obedience is based on the fact that if I continue to live in disobedience, I'm going to suffer and pay, right? You know, God ch chastens those he loves. <laughs> and as you walk with the Lord, you and I are going to have special woodsheds prepared for us for those, those moments. But here's what we should never be afraid of. We should never be afraid that God is ever going to stop acting like God. Do you ever feel like you're the exception to God's love? Like, God can't do anything with me. I, I've outsinned his grace. We feel that way. Because we, we, we feel like our love is deserved, which is a flawed biblical statement. God's love is grace. It is without merit. Like, God loves us because he's a lover. He doesn't love us because we got it together. You know? So, okay, look, at we, we own pets. Anyone here own pets? We own pets because we love dog hair, and we love the smell of, of dog. We love, we love things being chewed up. We, we love to see urine and feces on our floor, and we love to spend 60 to 75 bucks a month on dog food. Isn't that why you bought a dog? No. You own pets because you just want to love them and pet them and feed them treats and have them do dumb things with Frisbees. And, right? We love dogs because we love dogs, right? And some of us have multiple dogs. Like, you just have so much love for dogs that you go buy more. We've had four at one time, just because I loved messes, you know. The, the, the laundromat hated me. We had a husky. They'd clean out the filters after I was there because it'd just be, there'd be a whole other dog in the, the lint trap. <laughs> but never be afraid that God is ever going to stop being God. God is a holy God, and we are to reverence God, trust him, and obey him. We are to desire to please God above everything and anything else. We need to fear God and not man. Jesus tells us in those soft, soft words of his, like little kisses of an angel on your neck, where he says, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, and after that have no more than they can do, more, more, no more that they can do, but I will show you whom you should fear. 
Fear him after he has killed has power to cast into hell. And yes, I say to you, fear him. It's not nice. Well, yeah, it is. Jesus is saying, hey, if, if you only worry about what God thinks of you, then you don't need to worry about what other people think of you. Proverbs 29, verse 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. The scripture gives us examples of several men who had lost the fear of God. 1 Samuel 15, for you note takers, verse 24 says, Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Remember, God told Samuel, I'm taking the kingdom from Saul. Yikes. Herod. Herod killed John the Baptist for fear of the crowd. You know the story. He's sitting around boozing up, and his little niece shows up and does a little fancy dance for him, and he goes, ooh, I'll give you up to half the kingdom. Right? Mark 6. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with the haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. So he was worried about what the other people around him would have said. Pontius Pilate. His fear of man led him to condemn Jesus, Mark 15. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them and delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Now, you and I may not be in such extreme positions to betray Jesus or, or uh, you know, betray John the Baptist or to lose the kingdom. We may feel that way when we blow it, but... The fear of men will lead us to do things that we shouldn't have done or not do certain things because of pressure from people, right? What is, what is that? I mean, there's a term for it. It's called appeasing, being a people pleaser. Anyone here a people pleaser, right? Yeah, yeah. Ned, stop pointing at me. That's why I wore this shirt. knew everyone would like this. Hides the stains. You know, when Moses was charged in delegating out his leadership responsibilities in the nation of Israel before they were uh, in the promised land, <clears throat> he was exhorted in Exodus 18. It says, listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and, and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, underline that, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. So that's a characteristic for leadership when, when God is picking a person. Uh, 
But there's also irony in the Bible, right? You know the story of Jonah, right? You've seen the cartoon, right? Remember that? Slapping each other with fish in Nineveh. Jonah, he says, when he's getting on the boat, he says, Then they said to him, Please tell us for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And what, of what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. The whole story is, is he was not afraid of God, because what did he do? He ran from his calling. He went down, 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 you know. Proverbs even tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is knowing what to do in the various situations in life, right? You ever, you ever notice life takes left and right hand turns without your permission? It goes places and does things you didn't expect. And, and you, you get caught off guard, right? Has, has your life ended up the way you planned on it? Anyone? None of us have. Even serving the Lord, things go, I wouldn't say haywire, but things get a little silly. But how do you stay the course in what the Lord has set before you? And that's what wisdom does. Wisdom allows you to navigate those situations. The other thing wisdom allows us to do, or not rather wisdom, but the fear of the Lord does, Proverbs 18 tells us this, or excuse me, Proverbs 8, 13. It says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. So the fear of God allows you to set boundaries in your life to keep you from the things that Christ has died for in your life. We have a whole book written from a man's point of view who lost the fear of God. You know what book that is? Ecclesiastes, the diary of a backslidden Christian. So Ecclesiastes 12, 13, it says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. It took Solomon his whole life to come to that conclusion. He was the wisest man who's ever walked the earth, probably next to Christ himself. And he blew it. Verse 2. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and to offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. So, the first mention of the word love. It's in the context of a father and his love towards his son. If you were to come up with one keyword for the entire Bible, it would be what? The word love, right? John 3.16, for God so tolerated the world. Agape. So God so liked the world. No, he loved the world, and, and so he loved the world that he what? He gave, he gave his only begotten son. So you see the correlation between John, John 3.16 and, and verse 2 here. Abraham is, or rather, Abraham is going to be a model of, of Father God and his love. But 2 John 
1.6. It says, this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. That's our barometer. If we're loving God, how's our obedience? Remember Meatloaf sang that song, I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. I think sometimes that applies to my walk, you know. Oh, I love you, Jesus. He says, well, then this is what I want you to do. And you're like, I don't do windows. Like, I'm a subcontractor for Jesus. Like, I, I just, I have limits to what God wants of me. You know, if you really want to be a better lover of your wife, your kids, your husband, your friends, your coworkers, you simply just need to obey God. You know, we, we covered that self-confrontation manual last winter. And, you know, one of the things the Bible doesn't give us a lot of explicit instruction on how to have a good marriage. Jesus gave us one command. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. That applies to your marriage. You don't need any more than that, right? Just, just treat your spouse like you want to be treated, okay? And that's going to be a great marriage. But if, you, if you're not doing what Jesus first said, love God with your whole heart, mind, body, and strength. If you're not doing that, you'll never be a lover of people, okay? So that's the key is first love God, and then the outpouring, the product of that will pour on to people, right? Examine your horizontal relationships today. How do you deal with the people in your life you're called to love and respect and have reverence for? How do you treat your boss? How do you treat your pastor? How do you treat your lo- your, the loved ones in your lives? It's a direct reflection of your relationship with God, right? It's a barometer. And we all fall, fall short. I'm just not picking on me here. So I just need to obey God more. Isn't that so hard? Like when, when you read 1 Corinthians 13, we, we, you hear it at every wedding. I don't like weddings. They're boring, right? You hear the chicken dance, and then you hear, love is patient, love is kind, marriage, right? They're boring. But we don't ever listen to that passage of scripture. So try this someday. You know how it gives us a list of what love looks like. Love is patient. Well, how have you been patient this week with the people around you? Love is kind. How kind have you been? You know, so you really examine through that filter going, am I really acting loving? Because I fall short on every one of those. And the beauty is, is you take out the word love in 1 Corinthians 13, and then you insert the word Jesus. Because Jesus is always patient. Jesus is always kind. That's when we start to see things click in our life. Verse 3. So Abram, Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. <clears throat> then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, the lad, and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So again, another first mention is the word worship. How do you define worship? Is it singing? Is this an expression of devotion? Is this a bowing down? Is this an offering of of homage? That's all part of it. But the narrative gives us the definition because Abraham offered what he valued most to God. 
So here's your question, Christian. Do you offer your time to God? Do you offer your talent to God? And then do you offer your treasure to God? Those are good questions to ask. I think sometimes we give Jesus our leftovers. I'll go to church if I feel like it. I will give money if I have money left over after being self-indulgent on payday. I will volunteer at church if it's convenient. You know, ministry is never convenient. I will ask people, people who uh, aren't necessarily faithful in their walk, I said, me as the pastor, how would you feel if I pastored the church the way you relate to God? What if I only came on Sundays when I felt like it? What if I only paid the bills if I had the money laying around after spending all the money on other things I'd rather have? You know, it's a barometer you should ask yourself. Am I being faithful in making Christ first in my calendar, in my checkbook, so on and so forth, even your own skill set? He's offering what is most valuable. You know, one of the things that talking to other pastors Post-COVID, you know what COVID has done? Created a false sense of busyness in people. People are, because they sat around for three years doing nothing, they feel they got to make up for lost time. And so church attendance has plummeted. Online watching has plummeted. Like everyone's so busy now as Christians, nothing's getting done even more than before the pandemic because the idolatry of free time. You ever tell yourself, I just need a little me time today? You know what Jesus says? He says, you need to die to yourself today. You know, you, the thing is, we're self-indulgent, aren't we? Who did we think about this morning? Anyone wake up going, what am I cooking for breakfast? What am I going to wear? How am I going to, what a me, 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 right? That's me. Yeah, I watched, uh, you ever watch those little TikTok shorts that they have on, uh, on, on YouTube, you know, as you're doing your devotions on YouTube like me, five to six hours a day? Um, <laughs> this orthodox they asked this orthodox monk priest guy and he's got the long beard and the ponytail and the black outfit they're like okay why do you guys dress like that i mean they look medieval and and they said you know what the, the real practical reason is is because we're required to disregard how we look he says he says my hair is long and scraggly and i'm balding and my beard is patchy but he says, I maintain a posture of not just being like filthy and unkempt, but like not drawing attention to his physical appearance, right? He's purposely saying no to himself in an area that he may normally, you know, indulge himself in, you know? So to them, it's a practical way of self-denial. Imagine wearing the same outfit every day. Okay, youpers, youper men. Right? You have the black jeans and the blue jeans and the plaid shirt and the solid shirt. Like We kind of dress that way already. Like we're, we're not fashionable people up here, but you, you catch my drift. Like They've just, in their practice, has just established a way of self-denial just by the way they present themselves. They don't want to be attractive and distract from Christ. Whether or not you agree with that, you know, it's, that's just something they do. And it's just an interesting point of view that I took note of. Romans 12.1, you guys know this verse. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, 
holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. A living sacrifice. You know what the problem with a living sacrifice is? It moves around. You ever try to dispatch an animal while it was still alive? Right? Like, just think of fish. Like, you ever catch catfish? You know how to, how to dress a catfish? Where you pound a nail in their head, cut off the whiskers, and then you got to peel it while it's still alive? Like, there's a process to it, and it's not easy. Or you just see how they dispatch certain animals. They can hurt you, you know? And it's like, I think that's like you and I. As like, like God goes to, to dispatch us, we dodge the bullet. Oswald Chambers says, we try to pick our own hill of our own crucifixion. We pick the spot of our own martyrdom. We only want to die on certain hills. As long as there's a camera and people to watch us, you know. And it's, it's, it's just how we are as people. But to present yourself a living sacrifice where you're just willingly letting the God, letting the God of the universe, your Savior, to just dispatch you the way he sees. You know, it's hard to be a nobody in the body of Christ because our flesh always wants to like leave our fingerprint on the work of God. And it's hard to serve in obscurity. It's, it's hard to serve without eye service. I love watching churches taking pictures of all the good things they do in the community. It's like, hey guys, you just got your reward now. You know? I, I call it compassion pornography where they go around and they're feeding homeless people and they're giving homeless people money, and you look at the, the look and the response of the homeless people, they feel patronized. Oh, you're just the subject of your little film to, to provoke vicarious compassion in others. Like, how condescending and rude is that? That we're, we're going to document what we do for other people? Let the Lord take record of it. You know, let your, your giving and your serving be done in secret. I catch it in my own life. I rate my performance based on how many people watched us online. But you know, the message is first and foremost to who's in the room today, right? This is secondhand smoke. This is just, you're watching other people being loved by the Holy Spirit when you're watching online, you know, or you, you watch, I, I watch a lot of other services too, and it's like, man, I wish I was sitting in that, but I'm not. I'm sitting here today, you know. Verse 6, so Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. Yikes. Put yourself, this is just a thought, as a father. Maybe you've thought of this. You've got to kill your son with a knife and then burn him. It, think of what he's go, what's going on in his mind right now. And Abraham's thinking, well, should I go right to left? You know, should I just stab? I mean, <laughs> verse 7. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. Then he said, look, the fire and the wood. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. I believe the King James says this better. If you have the King James text, notice how it's worded here. It says, and Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. 
Notice the difference. It indicates God himself will be the sacrifice, right? Giving us a glimpse of the work of Christ on the cross. Verse 9, then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said to him, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. And there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. So let's take a moment. Let's recap what is the prophetic significance in this story here. You know, John 5, verse 39, Jesus tells us this. He says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. Jesus gives us the clue. Luke 24, you know, the road to Emmaus. How, how do his disciples not recognize him? You know, did he have a different physical appearance? What was going on? But Jesus gives them the best Bible college course ever. They walk to Emmaus, go to their house, and it says here, And at the beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Psalm 40, verse 7 tells us, Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. So again, we can look at this passage and see characteristics of, of, of Christ himself. But we're going to see here, the first thing you notice is that Abraham willingly offered up in sacrifice his only son. It wasn't under compulsion. Hebrews 11, verse 17 tells us, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Abraham's thinking was like, well, if I kill him, he's coming back to life. Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but also delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Christian, I want you to reflect on this verse specifically, because if you're in a trial today, and you somehow feel God is withholding his very best for your life, look at this verse. It says, God gave you his very best by sending his son to the cross in your place. So if God didn't spare him, how much freely is he going to give us all things? Right? Your flesh will say, God doesn't love you right now. Satan will say, look, you've blown it. God's withholding from you because he doesn't like you today. No, he gave his only son. Another prophetic element is where did he offer this sacrifice? The location is important. It's Mount Moriah. This is the height of the mountain range where Jerusalem sits. 
It's specifically Golgotha, or what we call Mount Calvary. Right now it's an uh, Arab bus station, right? Did you guys go and see Golgotha? There's an actual hill that looks like a skull. You can look it up. It's really fascinating. And there's an Arab bus station right there. And then the garden tomb is right next to it, so it saves you a trip. Unlike what Sunday school curriculum has depicted, Isaac was a young man. He wasn't a lad, like we would say a lad. He's not a little boy, right? He's very well into his 20s. Some people will say 30s. And we know that because he carried the wood. It also shows us that he was a willing participant. He could have outrun or fought off his old dad. How old was Abraham in the story? But he allowed himself to be bound. He was that willing participant. You know, at Jesus' crucifixion, he was taunted. Remember what the taunts were saying? You need to prove that you're God by getting off the cross. Right? Isn't that whatever the, 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 the other thief on the cross and the crowd was saying, look, you can't even save yourself. Why don't you come down now? Psalm 22, Psalm 69, those are all psalms from Christ's perspective. You can get a better narrative. But Christ could have pulled himself off the cross to prove he was God, but then he couldn't have proved he was our Savior by dying on the cross and then resurrecting three days later. That's what he was trying, or I wouldn't say trying, that's what he was proving, is he's our Savior. Another first mention we have here is the word lamb. Specifically with the intent of sacrifice, the burnt offering. We know from John 1.29, John the Baptist declares, he says, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isaac asked a very important question. Where's the lamb? He understood that the centerpiece of true worship was the substitutionary atonement of the lamb. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So we see then a ram appears caught in a thicket, and he is going to be sacrificed in place of Isaac. Just as Christ was sacrificed in our place, but there's no substitute for Jesus Christ. You guys know the verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So it's telling us Jesus earned the right to be our Savior. You know what religion tells you? It tells me you need to try harder. Right? Every world religion tells you you've got to perform. Right? Be better. Some religions say if you don't do good now, you're coming back. <laughs> Who wants to do this again? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, even George Harrison, right, devout Hindu, had his cremated ashes spread in the river Ganges because that was their belief that would break the cycle of reincarnation. 
He didn't even want to believe what his religion taught him. Isn't that ironic? Well, he's probably having a flaming swirly right now to his detriment. But that's the thing is Christ died in your place. So ask yourself a question today. How many of your sins did Jesus die for? Past, present, and future. The ones we're going to do later today. The ones we're going to do tomorrow. There's no substitute for Jesus. So let's move on. So when did Isaac figuratively come back to life? Put yourself in Abraham's mindset. God says, I want you to kill your son. I believe at that moment in his mind, he reconciled his son to be dead. But then at the end of the trial, which was what? Three days later, through this whole narrative, when God intervened, I think Isaac came back to life in his heart. So there's a a figurative view of resurrection. I I look at it in my own life where I had a a grandmother in hospice. And the family was called together to go say our final respects to grandma. Well, my grandma got the award for being in the hospice longer than any other human being ever in the world. She was there for like two and a half years. But... In that two and a half years or such, I kept getting phone calls. Grandma's going to pass. Come say goodbye to Grandma. I said, no. I already did. She died in my heart that last visit. And so it was very difficult for me to like, and she wasn't looking good. You know, it's hard to watch the people we love who are strong and used to protect for us. You know, it's hard to go back and revisit that, you know, and, and bring it back to life just to have it die again. So I understand in my mind what it was like for Abraham to just say, hey, you know, in my, I'm just going to let that person be dead to me. But Hebrews 11:19 says he concluded that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. But ultimately, this is a picture of God's method of salvation. God gave us this story that to show us he has no part in human sacrifice. See, God never intended for Isaac to die in this narrative. That's precisely why he asked Abraham to do it. Now, when you study the Bible, study it within the context of its culture, Canaanite culture was full of human sacrifice. Human sacrifice is still practiced in the world today. You know, abortion is the number one cause of death in the world today of human beings. See, human sacrifice is a satanic corruption of substitutionary atonement. See, the highest attempt for man to attain God is by his efforts. And the highest form of that is found in human sacrifice. Well, look at Islam. See, Christianity says God became a man. He sent his son to die for you. Islam says you need to send your sons to die for Muhammad. You need to die for Allah, right? That's why they suicide bomb. And they're not suicide killing themselves because they want eternity. They, don't, they want 70 virgins. That's why they've created that lie. They're not motivated to have everlasting life. They want physical pleasure. 
But that's the whole core of their teaching. It's a death cult. In fact, it's more of a political agenda disguised as a religion. But how do you fight an enemy that feels glorified in death? Right? You can't. But that's the highest form of human effort is when humans die. And God says he will never have any part in it. Verse 14, And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. If you've been to my house on my refrigerator, I have this Sunday school. Did you, have you seen that? I have a Sunday school crayon drawing. I believe Michelle and I made when we were doing children's ministry planting Calvary Chapel St. Cloud 20 plus years ago. And it just has three crosses on a hill, and it says, you know, Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. And we keep that on our refrigerator, right? That's our grocery list, right? <laughs> God will provide. Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, and it wasn't named in reference to what he experienced. He didn't name it Mount Trial or Mount Agony, or Mount Obedience. Instead, he named the hill reference to what God did. He named it Mount Provision. He named it knowing God will provide the ultimate sacrifice for salvation on that hill someday. Verse 15, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn said the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashores, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. God simply just reiterated one last time, or one next time I should say, his promise from the beginning. My takeaway of that is, you know, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. And I find as I get into my word, as I go to conferences, as I seek to minister unto the Lord myself, God never shows me another new trick or another new method or some catchy, hokey-pokey thing, right? He always takes me back to the basics. Where do I stumble and fall? By not doing the basics, right? My flesh is always looking for a shortcut to do something, right? Walt Disney always hired lazy people because they always did things the easiest, simplest, and cheapest way, right? <laughs> And so sometimes my flesh just doesn't want to go the method of the cross. But God always says, this is the way it's done. Sometimes I want to help produce God's blessing in my life by adding to it. You ever find you can't accelerate what God wants to do in your life? Like you can remain faithful, and yeah, there's, there is that process. But a work of the Spirit will always take time. A work of the Spirit will always be as such, but it will only be accomplished by the power of the Spirit, not by might, not by human effort. 
And the way of doing things is always the way God has intended it to be done. And that's what he's saying here. He's like, I, I will bless you. I will multiply. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Abraham's consequence ultimately plays out for you and I. Right? We're here today. You know, we're descendants of Abraham by faith. We get to read his story. Abraham doesn't read our story. We read his story. At the time, he probably didn't think of that, right? You look at like Job. Job's story has ministered to millions of people throughout history. And, and if you would have asked Job, hey, would you like to go through this so you can minister to millions or would you like comfort? What do you think he would have chosen? <laughs> so, so Job in his devotion to God, just said, let, let God do what he needs to do with me. And, it, and it's uncomfortable, right? The way of the cross is uncomfortable. But the result is going to be God's going to bless it. I ask myself, do I want God's blessing in my life? Or do I just simply want to be blessed of God? True worship involves death. True worship involves sacrifice. True worship involves um, obedience. Like, just basics. There's real basics there. It's presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice. And uh, I'll end on this. When I, when I was wrapping up my service at my home church, I, I uh, went to go see... We took the kids dog sledding, and we are at another Calvary Chapel, and, and the guy there was filling in for the pastor, and he was simply recalling his call into the ministry where he was a young man and he really just really wanted to serve Lord, the Lord in very deeper, more devoted capacity. But he, he found there were stops. He could only get so far. And his mentor told him, he says, if you want God to use you, you have to let him kill you. Gulp. You just, as Jesus says, if a man seeks to save his life, he'll lose it. But if he seeks to lose his life for my sake, you'll find it. But again, you have to go, I can't produce this in my life. i got to let God do it by saying, God, kill me. <laughs> kill my pride, right? Kill my self-sufficiency. Kill my ego. All these things that we value so much. But that's where you receive God's promise. You get God's blessing. So let's, 